Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by Doohop. Doohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at doohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and if I'm not mistaken, this is our 190th podcast episode. I'm pretty sure I'm correct about that, but we are going to talk about other mistakes today. Mistakes I've made, mistakes we've seen airlines and their CEOs make over several decades of experience we both have with the airline industry. If I'm not mistaken, you're Paul McCartney, right? I mean, Scott McCartney. <laughs> Very close, Ben. That's my uncle, Paul McCartney. I'm Scott, and I have no musical talent, but I have made a career out of writing about mistakes airlines make. And good things airlines got right, too. We should learn from mistakes, right? But we often see mistakes repeated in this business. It's a tough business and often tough to get it right. Ask any traveler stranded or canceled or disappointed. The consequences of airline mistakes impact people's lives. Ben, we're going to talk to Simon Hawkins, head of Virgin Atlantic in the U.S. and the Caribbean. Simon is a longtime airline hand who has been head of Virgin Atlantic's global sales program and who also has worked for Delta, which owns 49% of Virgin Atlantic and operates closely under a transatlantic joint venture. It's a great time to talk to Simon about Virgin's renewed growth and the crazy busy summer that we are in the middle of now. I'm looking forward to hearing your conversation with Simon at the Aviation Festival of America's convention last month, Scott. But first, let's talk about mistakes. I guess this is like confessional. I'll start with mistakes I made running airlines. The first one that comes to mind is a big mistake that's been very public for me, which is when we had a customer at Spirit who had been told by his doctor he couldn't fly. He was a U.S. veteran and older. We refused him his, his refund because he had bought a non-refundable ticket. And initially, I supported my team's approach on that. We were very strict on that. But then I realized that wasn't the right thing to do, and I've been paying for that the rest of my career. But ultimately, we did do the right thing. That's tough, tough situations. And, and I know everybody's inclination is to support the team. That's important, too. Um, but it's, um, you know, time and again, that's, I think that's a mistake that uh, has happened a lot to a lot of airline executives, um, and they really are tough situations. In, in my case, Ben, I've made plenty of mistakes writing stories, and the advantage I had was we could just run a correction the next day or go into a story online and fix it, if only life was like that. So I'll talk about mistakes I saw airline executives make. To me, the worst one was Don Cardi misleading, you can say lied to, 
his employees about big bonuses for himself and five other top American executives at a time he was asking them to approve massive pay cuts. Cardi not only hid the bonuses while pay cut voting was underway, he misled union leaders in a meeting when they asked. But he did tell some people, and one of those some people told me. American lied to me when I asked about it, and I couldn't get it confirmed until it actually showed up in a federal filing. Cardi delayed that filing of the company's annual report, the 10K, so the bonuses wouldn't show up until the union voting ended. The voting didn't go well, and there were problems. The flight attendants asked for more time. American asked the SEC for another extension before filing the 10K, but the SEC said no. It was filed and buried very deep in the footnotes was a disclosure of big retention bonuses for six executives. I found it. Found it because I had the tip that I knew it had to be there somewhere. And I broke the story. Cardi got fired the next day. Gerard Arpey got handed the controls and ended up meeting well into the night that first day with the flight attendants union. American got a deal to avoid bankruptcy for a little while. Eventually, the company ended up in bankruptcy reorganization. The damage done by Cardi's lie lasted in bad blood at that company for many years. And I think there's a lesson in all of this. You have to be straight with your employees. Well, and Gordon Bethune said that when he was on the show, right? He says, you never lie to your doctor, your lawyer, or your employees. And he was right. Well, okay, I'll offer a second mistake. And this is going to be one that is a little more like the kind airlines make all the time. When I was working with Wow Airlines, they decided to buy A330 aircraft so they could fly from Reykjavik to the west coast of the U.S., something that Iceland Air did not do because they didn't have planes that could fly that far. At the time, WOW only had about 15 A320s. I pounded on the table and said, we shouldn't do this. Those planes are going to be too expensive. They're going to distract the company. But we went ahead and did it. And ultimately, WOW went out of business in large part because the enormous cost and complexity of that wide-body plane forced them into that. There were other reasons too, but that was a huge contributor because WOW had been profitable every year until they brought that plane on. Hmm. I'm not saying the A330 is a bad airplane. It's not. It's a terrific airplane, but it's got to be deployed within a network that can support it. You know, one of the things I remember Bob Crandall saying uh, sort of teaching when I was learning the business was uh, you can never have an airplane that's too small. Uh, and and Bob would rather have fewer seats because he could charge higher prices, uh, but never wanted to get in the situation where you had all those empty seats uh, to fill. And so you were uh, selling seats at ridiculous low prices or the costs were just too high. And that's what WOW ran into, right? That's exactly right. 
And for an airline that was really small, having a deal with the complexity of that plane was huge. And we'd have, you know, 240 people coming in from L.A. And if that plane was an hour late, guess what we had to do with all the planes going into Europe? Delay them all in an hour because they were waiting for all those people from L.A. It's one of, one of the great lessons of Southwest, right? Stick to, to one airplane. Uh, and, and, and the one airplane has evolved. Um, you know, people say, well, Southwest will never be able to fly to Hawaii, uh, without a bigger airplane, but now they have 737s that can fly to Hawaii and they do, and they've become a major player in Hawaii. It's funny how, how everything changes, but that is a mistake, uh, that, that wow made that, uh, I think does have lessons across the industry. Um, that's a, that's a great point, Ben. I'd say the second biggest mistake I've seen in the airline business is when workers punish customers to get their way in labor negotiations. This just doesn't happen in other industries. I know unions feel like they have little leverage under the Railway Labor Act. They really aren't allowed to strike and negotiations are designed to drag on for years. So they think the only way they can pressure management into better contract terms is by disrupting the operation or making it painful for customers so that revenue drops and management will give in. What they don't account for is the damage done to reputation and loyalty. I remember the summer of 2000 when United Pilots had a massive sick out and slowdown and created the summer from hell for travelers. Different unions at different airlines have done the same thing. Taxi the airplane slow, insist on non-essential repairs made at the gate, you name it. The Southwest mechanics raised all kinds of safety concerns when they were negotiating. Then when they got what they wanted, somehow all those safety concerns disappeared. But customers remember all this. They remember not getting to their cousin's wedding or not getting home for their kid's soccer game or having to run through a big airport because your flight was late because the pilots wanted to make a statement. That happened to me earlier this year. In fact, on my flight to Miami, I had to joke because the captain announced that we were going to be late because the printer in the cockpit needed to be reset and they had called maintenance to do it. There were a lot of tech geeks on the plane who probably could have reset it in the time it took to get a mechanic there to reset the printer, we probably could have gone to Best Buy and bought a printer. Uh, but it was a way, I think, of simply delaying the flight. Right now, there are a lot of negotiations going on. Some unions have billboards up around airports telling people not to fly the airline. Really? How short-sighted. You get paid by those customers. If you piss them off or scare them away, it's ultimately going to hurt you. I know unions think travelers have short memories and they'll be back, and that probably is true. But this is really just another reason people dislike airlines. Using your customers as leverage, pawns in your labor dispute, is a dangerous, destructive game and really not fair to travelers. I agree it's not fair to travelers. And what I think the unions who do this don't realize is their pay is a function of what the market should pay them. Pilots are getting paid more now 
because there's not as many pilots entering the pipeline. The 1,500-hour rule, the expensive cost to become a pilot, the military not cranking out lots of pilots, not because they vote to strike or they slow down the airline. They get paid based on market forces that they can't avoid, but the management can't avoid either. When my son was younger, he asked me once, Daddy, why do some jobs pay more than others? And I had to think about that for a minute. But being an economist, I said, well, here's why. The more people who can do your job, the less you get paid. If you're LeBron James and you're the best basketball player in the world, and he may not be today, but he was when my son asked this yeah. question, um, you can get paid a lot of money because if you don't play, the person who will play in his place isn't nearly as good. But if you do a more simpler job that almost anyone can do, you don't get paid that much because if you want to leave, there's somebody else who will take your job. And that's a reality of how people get paid today. And that's true for pilots, flight attendants, and mechanics too. So when pilots are oversupplied, there's pressure for pilots to cut wages. And when pilots are undersupplied, they get big pay increases. None of that has to do with the Railway Labor Act or votes to strike or slowing things down or any of that. Totally agree. It's a really fascinating issue. There's a lot more we could discuss, Ben, and maybe listeners will have some suggestions of their own they could send us of the worst mistakes they've seen. It's an interesting discussion to continue. Well, no mistake here, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We want to thank Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and APUs. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And we want to thank our sponsor, Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue and lowering costs and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Doohop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. And we're joined now on the podcast by Simon Hawking. Simon is head of Americas for Virgin Atlantic. 
He's had a uh, wonderful career in many different aspects in the airline business, but Simon started out in pensions and benefits and the exciting world of actuarial tables or whatever. Uh, Simon, welcome. And and tell us first, how in the world does one get from pensions to airlines? Thanks, Scott. And uh, well, I must say, it's, I'm a really big fan of this podcast, so I really appreciate the time. Uh, it's a long story, but essentially, I think I just grew up traveling. I had a passion for travel. And I think like many of us, I took a job a temporary role within a commercial organization at Virgin Atlantic uh-huh. um, because I just wanted something a bit more interesting to do. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. And I've moved around the organization ever since. So yeah. really happy to be here today. That's fascinating. Virgin Atlantic recently joined SkyTeam. And this was a shock to me because <laughs> I had no idea that Virgin Atlantic hadn't been part of SkyTeam from the beginning. Um, why the change? What does it do? And, and let's talk some about uh, the relationship with Delta, which owns 49% of the company, right? Sure. So to your point, um, that people have definitely been surprised. They were like, well, you're already part of SkyTeam. No, yeah. you joined SkyTeam officially this year. Look, and I think um, from a Virgin Atlantic perspective, this is about customer choice. It's about frequent flyer benefits, extending our virtual family to carriers around the world. So we're really proud to be the UK's only SkyTeam member. It provides lounge access as well throughout many of our destinations. So it just mm-hmm. it just increases our network across the world. With regards to Delta, it's um, actually next year is a quite symbolic year. It's approaching 10 years since uh, right? Delta took an equity stake and also a joint venture partnership. I myself am mm-hmm. based in Atlanta. You can't really tell from the accent, um, but really <laughs> proud to partner with Delta. They're a phenomenal organization calling them not only colleagues, but friends across the organization. Mm -hmm. And then I think I'd be remiss not to talk about Air France KLM. We also moved into a joint venture with Air France KLM just before COVID in 2018, Mm -hmm. part of an extended family. And, you know, together as a family, Delta, Air France, KLM and Virgin, were operating about 25% of transatlantic flights this summer. Mm -hmm. So a big family. And we play a really important role in that with the UK. Yeah. But but you've had the joint venture with Delta. What does being part of SkyTeam give you that you didn't have before? I think it's the extended relationship with other carriers across the SkyTeam network. So the okay. ability to earn and burn. Um, let's look at a carrier like Korean, for example. So uh-huh. we can actually extend our loyalty status to some of the Korean passengers and it opens up new opportunities for us. Uh-huh. And um, you work for Delta at one point. You know them well. How's the relationship going? Is there anything that that you two would like to change in the future? I think, well, the relationship is fantastic. And I, I always reflect upon the relationship we have, the 49% equity stake that Delta took within Virgin Atlantic. And it has been genuinely a meeting of minds. Um, I think there's a mutual respect for the strengths of both organizations and the work that we do together very much complements it. The United Kingdom from the US is such an important market, the third largest international market behind transborder Mexico and Canada, that we are mm. a very important part of that puzzle. Um, with regards to where we're at, at the moment, approaching 10 years, you know, we continue to have a very big focus on customer seams as an organization. So we realize there's a lot of customer benefits to when a joint venture comes together, but also at times there can be what we call customer experience seams. That means, you know, a customer booking through Delta, flying from Birmingham, Alabama through Atlanta on Virgin Atlantic to Heathrow. We want to make sure they have the most seamless experience as possible from booking right through to traveling as well, using apps, making sure we're recognized by both carriers as well. So there's still work to do on that, but we're making fantastic strides in that. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of talk about summer 
and how busy this summer is going to be. I think I think Delta was the one who said they had already sold. This was back in in March or April. Uh, already sold seventy five percent of their seats uh, for summer. How's it shaping up for you? Uh, are, are are you going to be impacted uh, by uh, too much demand in in terms of um, disruptions or or gridlock or chaos or anything like that? So I think uh, reflecting back on last year and it's around, you know, it's around President's Day last year where we saw that surge in demand, um, particularly coming from the US to the UK. Um, And it's continued. Uh, We've had a record quarter of books revenue going into the summer. We are, you know, we're, we're looking at really strong load factors for the summer period that revenge travel continues yeah i mean, i've listened to your podcast as well and i know there's a lot of talk about corporate travel as well and that continues to increase uh-huh. um, from a corporate perspective as well as the uk is such a significant corporate market um operationally wise last summer you know there were some challenges around european airports heathrow was not an exception to that but you know right. i'm pleased to say that we essentially um op- had a completion factor of 99.2 percent of our flights and in terms of punctuality, we were the most punctual carrier from Heathrow. So, and we're continuing that into this year as well. So, and I'd wrap up from last year to say that we operated around 80% of our capacity, but achieved about 100% of our revenue from 2019. So that strength is really continuing into the summer as well. You think, you think Heathrow can hold up under the demand this summer? Absolutely. They've um, taken on a lot more staff. Um, some of the challenges that were at Heathrow last year, um, we do not expect to see this year as well, because uh-huh. there's a lot more staff at Heathrow. And are you seeing uh, economic strength in Europe as as well as the U.S., or is it more one-sided at this point? Well, it's an, I think it's an interesting question. I was just speaking on a seminar, and when I look at the U.K. side, I look at the percentage of spend as a percentage of GDP in the United Kingdom. It is still not recovered to pre-pandemic levels. Now, we know there's some economic challenges in the U.K., but that sheer desire to travel, to connect, to be with friends, family, to connect with businesses, is just continuing and it's surging into the summer. Our attention is very much focused on the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're cautiously optimistic about where we see the end of the year coming in. But we're continuing to see that surge and expecting a very busy summer. You know, it's, re- it's really interesting. Last year, there was great demand for summer travel. And then everybody was, oh, it's going to drop off after Labor Day. Uh, you, you know, when summer's over, uh, the party's over and there's no business travel. Traditionally, business travel would kick in at the end of summer and that would carry airlines through. Um, but it was just the opposite. There, there really wasn't much drop off in, in demand. Yeah. Um, I, the rest of the economy softened, I think. Um, but... Um, we've seen air travel be really resilient. Um, do you think that's a permanent change? Is that going to continue again this year, next year, where travel is just a higher priority for people and they're going to spend when they might put off other purchases? We do. And look, we you know, have a really good position at London Heathrow to the UK. You know, the other things to take into consideration for a US customer is the exchange rate as well. So as our CEO, Shai Weiss, always says, it's never been so cheap to go over and see the king and the king um, and the queen uh, this year. So we do expect that to continue. Look, I'll be, I'm quite frank with corporate travel. I think it, the way it is materializing is very interesting how we're seeing it. And, you know, if I look at industry stats from the US to the UK, passenger volumes, particularly with the traditional corporates, are recovering. Are they at 2019 levels? They're not from a passenger perspective, but the average fare and the desire to pay is there. 
What I would also say is the booking dynamic of those customers has shifted a little as well. So you used to have to the UK industry-wide about 40% of corporate customers that book within 20 days. That shifted to a bit further out. Mm. Listen to your podcast. I'm not going to say that word, but there is definitely that combination of business and leisure traffic that is materializing right. as well with the flexibility. Right. Um, and then the other thing I'd say is, you know, we look at different sectors of business travel. We look at about 16 different sectors, be it finance, banking, consultancy, media and entertainment, technology. It's definitely materializing at different rates is what I would say. And you can guess from headlines who's coming back stronger versus others as well. So sure. we're cautiously optimistic. We do see a strong end to the year. Um, and we have the product, the service and the partners to be able to deliver that as well. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a change in business travel where, uh, I mean, it's interesting people booking further out. I, I'm curious if they're sort of consolidating customer visits and other things into fewer trips, maybe longer trips um, because you've got more. But, you know, the days of going to London to take a client to dinner and and then coming back, that's that's probably gone. or maybe not. Is it, a, is it a temporary thing or a permanent thing? So I have the privilege to move around the US, speak to different customers around um, the United States, especially from a corporate perspective. And I think the feedback we're getting is three or fourfold at the moment, which is the importance of face-to-face, the fact that video conferencing is actually complementary to business travel. I myself, I'm in Miami today, and I had calls with the UK at 5, 6, 7 a.m. this morning. Right. It's complementary. So that is, I think, what we were saying at the start of the pandemic, that maybe there's going to be a significant structural change. That will not materialize, in my opinion. I think with the focus for business travel, there's a focus on sustainability. There is a clear focus from corporates on perhaps we do less trips or we're more conscious about the flights that we do take as an organization. So that's number one. There's an economic focus as well because, you know, there is a real focus, the technology sector with companies focusing on their EBIT and maybe streamlining some of their travel. So they're doing less trips and longer trips is certainly Mm -hmm. what we're seeing at the moment. And then the SME, sorry, the SME is continuing to surge as well. So that discretionary traffic is really coming through as well. So Uh it's a real mixed bag, but it's very interesting to see the trends that are developing. And you mentioned sustainability. Um, for a lot of firms, some of your best customers, the, the sort of intellectual property firms of consulting, accounting, legal, what, whatever it would be, they don't have factories. to. If they need to reduce their carbon footprint, it's their travel that's going to be affected. Do you, do you think they will really curb their travel? Or a lot of people think, well, when push comes to shove, they're not going to leave the deal on the table, they're going to get on the airplane and go. Look, I think sustainability for Virgin, it is at the heart of everything we do. And I think we have a rich heritage in sustainability. I know as an industry, we're coming together and we, we, you know, we need to own that message. All I can say from a Virgin Atlantic perspective is our focus is on a couple of things. Number one is fleet transformation. We are continuing with a multi, multi-billion dollar fleet transformation. So uh, right now, coming from London Heathrow is one of our A330-900 NEOs. We've just entered the fourth into our fleet. Mm. And when you look at the Virgin Atlantic carbon emissions, we are 30% more efficient than when we were back in 2013. So mm-hmm. we are making great strides. Our average fleet age is seven years old. So we are one of the youngest and greenest fleets in the sky. So immediately we are getting a benefit and dare I say, when you're to, if you were to go online now and if you were to book um, a flight between JFK and London Heathrow, your average Virgin Atlantic carbon emissions would be 20 to 30% less yeah. than our competitors as well in many cases. So oh, that's number one. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, our CEO, Shai, is really clear on this as well. That is, it's 
the biggest challenge facing our industry, but yeah. we are absolutely there to, to deliver some change. And I think sustainable aviation fuel is the second piece. So later on this year, we will fly the first fully sustainable aviation fueled flight across the transatlantic in partnership with um, Rolls-Royce, for example, as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, the reason for that is quite clear that we must put pressure on the government to support the production of sustainable aviation fuel. We do have targets to reach net zero. We cannot do it on our own and we need governments to step in. That's the key point, isn't it? I I actually helped organize a conference of airline people at Duke University earlier this year, and we spent a session talking about sustainability, and it seemed very clear that, that the industry now understood couldn't get there on their own, need some kind of government major effort support um, we've, we've seen an enormous transformation in electric vehicles in, in this country and a lot of that has been driven by tax incentives by by financial support from the government it's in many ways a much harder problem um, for airlines uh, the the airplane still has to fly through the air yep. um, so it's uh, there was in some ways, some pessimism in the room that the industry couldn't get there, certainly couldn't get there on its own. Um, you guys have been at it a long time. I, I covered the first biofuel flight, which, um, which was a ferry flight of a, of a Virgin Atlantic 747. And that was a long time ago. Uh, but, I mean, there's been great progress with sustainable aviation fuel, and yet the volume is very small. Can we get there? We can get there with government support. And I think we're, as I said, I think we're seeing a desire from corporate travel and some of the largest organizations in the world when we're doing deals with them. And I credit our partner Delta here, who are doing a phenomenal amount of work to sign them up to sustainable aviation fuel deals, where essentially you're partnering with the Nikes of the world and some of those organizations to jointly purchase um, sustainable aviation fuel on behalf of your corporate travel and your footprint. Mm. For these organizations as well, recruiting the, the, the employees of the future. These employees are also very much, it's a high consideration for them. Does my organization do good in the world? Yes or no. And sustainability that does matter to, to employees. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So we will get there. I think we need to come together as an industry, which we are doing. And we also need to work with our governments as well to get there. So before you go, uh, I wanted to talk about the Virgin Atlantic route network in the U.S. Have you added cities, uh, dropped some cities? Uh, where, where are you these days with, with cities? We have. So, um, lo- so we operate now in total to 12 or from 12 U.S. cities on this side. So um, we had actually added to our footprint last year. We added two new markets, so much like a London bus. One doesn't come along, two comes along in a row. So before last year, we hadn't added a new city. The last one was Seattle back from 2017. So mm. really thrilled that actually we're almost approaching the year anniversary that we've got an Austin London Heathrow service. Ah. And then in November, very close to here, we launched a Tampa London Heathrow service as well. So added those to our portfolio. You know, we offer multi-frequency from a number of these airports as well. And then, you know, I'd be remiss not to say that's the strength of our partnership with Delta, offering another 200 plus destinations internally um, within the United States and seamlessly connecting onto Virgin services. So Austin's a fascinating city. Uh, it's it's very much up in the air as in, in terms of who's going to be the dominant airline there. Um, and it, interesting, too, that British Airways has been flying to Austin for quite some time. So you entering that market, is there enough for both of you? 
There's definitely enough for both of us. When we looked at the market, um, you look at the size of London Heathrow, it, in terms of passenger demand, it's the same as the whole of continental Europe. And actually, our friends at AFKLM have also launched there as well. So we have yeah. complementary flights. Um, it's definitely enough. We're really invested in the city. We've done activations at South by Southwest and continue to really push that needle. We have Delta there as well. So whilst it very much is a battle between airlines, I think with the strength of our joint venture plus Delta there, and um, we have every chance to win in that market. And yeah. we're so excited to be there. Fascinating, yeah, yeah. Simon, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. And, Thanks, Scott. Uh, and good luck uh, getting through this summer. Thanks, Scott, appreciate it. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Well, thanks again to Simon Hawkins for a great update on Virgin Atlantic and transatlantic travel. Virgin Atlantic is always an airline that's had a much bigger image than the size of the airline it actually is. I think part of that is because of the huge personality of its founder. Well, Scott, in this week's mailbag, our friend Joe from Victorville has an interesting question. Why did Delta do away with Northwest Cargo Airline? And why is Alaska the only U.S. airline that has a hybrid passenger cargo operation? Well, my recollection, Ben, is that Delta ended the cargo operation soon after the merger closed. Northwest flew a Pacific cargo operation with 747-200s, and those planes were getting old by 2008. Northwest pilot costs were probably higher compared to cargo airlines, and the company was losing business to the likes of Polar Air Cargo, Atlas Air, FedEx, and UPS were getting a lot more lift too. And it was just hard for a passenger airline to be running a full cargo division. It takes a lot of cargo to fill a 747. I think the bottom line was that Northwest wasn't all that competitive in the cargo business, and Delta which wasn't very fond of four-engine airplanes, didn't have the financial resources right out of bankruptcy to invest in refleeting a cargo division that wasn't very profitable, if at all. On Alaska, that's a whole lot more fun. They, they've ended the days when they had a combi airplane, fish in the front, passengers in the back, but they do still fly a few cargo 737s, it's really creative example of providing essential service to communities. The need to get fresh fish out of Alaska is significant, and the need to get essential goods into those communities is important too. I think Alaska sticks with it because Alaskan communities need it and appreciate it, and I say bravo on that. But it is a unique situation where there probably are not a lot of air alternatives in the cities Alaska already serves. Ben, you were at Northwest well before the Delta merger. What do you recall of the cargo division, and why do you think Delta ditched it? I think you said why they ditched it, and I think you were right. They were old airplanes that were getting long in the tooth, and Northwest just wasn't that competitive in the space. The reality, Scott, is that the freight air business is nothing like carrying passengers. People tend to think they're similar because they use the same kind of airplanes, 747s, 
you know, even A320s, things like that. And you need pilots to fly them. And in that sense, it's similar. But on the commercial side, everything is different. Freight only flies one way. It doesn't fly round trip. That makes enormous differences in how you schedule the planes. Passengers sort themselves at a hub. Freight doesn't. So there's a lot of labor in a hub situation to sort the packages. And it's just a different business. So the fact that an airline is good at carrying passengers says almost nothing about whether or not they'll be efficient carrying cargo. Just because you can fly planes doesn't mean you know how to run an airline. And a freight airline is a completely different thing. So in the hands of a company like Atlas or FedEx or UPS, it just makes a lot of sense. You'd say the same thing about any one of them saying they're going to get in the passenger business on a small-time basis. That's fascinating, Ben. Well done. That's all we have packaged up for Airlines Confidential this week. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening, and thanks again for a great interview with Virgin Atlantic. We'll see you all next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.